0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Exodus 25-34, through 34, focusing on 32-34. through 34. The Israelites ratified covenant with God at Mount Sinai with blood and an oath. Exodus 24, 7-8 records, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the blood of oath and curse. If we break covenant with you, O God, sprinkle our blood as you have sprinkled the blood of these bulls. That's exactly what's going to happen. And it's not going to take much time for the people to rebel. We've come to the true climax of the book of Exodus. We naturally think at first the climax is the Red Sea. People usually think the critical problem is on the outside, and there are often very real problems on the outside. Poverty, injustice, oppression, lack of education, bullying, dysfunctional parenting. If we could just change our life circumstances, then we could enjoy the blessing of God. No. No. There is a deeper problem. It is one thing to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It is much harder to get Egypt out of the Israelites. We bring the problem with us in the sinful desires and sinful thoughts of our human flesh. And that sinful flesh, which we own, it's ours, that sinful flesh is conformed by patterns of sinful human society. This is the problem with every church. If you want your church to be perfect, you're going to have to leave. And we keep inviting sinners like ourselves into the community. It's, it's a catch-22. How does God ever form a kingdom of priests and a holy nation out of sinful people who are determined to bring his wrath on their own heads? The incident of the golden calf is the true climax of Exodus. The enemy within is deeper and more insidious than the enemy without. The rebellion in the camp creates a true dilemma. How does holy God carry on with this rebellious people? Before getting to that climatic dilemma, let's start with an overview of Moses' 40 days on the mountain. This is in Exodus 25 through 31. We left the Israelites in Exodus 24 gazing up at Mount Sinai. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses has already received the basic stipulations of covenant, the Ten Commandments, and many general stipulations of covenant. These he wrote down and read out during the ratification ceremony. On this fifth trip up the mountain, Moses will receive the pattern for a tabernacle, a mobile temple for a mobile people. God's intent is to dwell in a special way with the Israelites. Chapter 25 starts out this way in verses 1 to 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. To build the tabernacle pattern given by God, Moses is going to require much wealth from the plunder the Israelites brought out from Egypt precious metals, gems, cloth, and wood. God does not demand these goods as his portion of the plunder, though that would certainly be fair. Instead, he tells Moses to raise it from every man whose heart moves him. I know these are just a few little words in a much larger text, but it's a foreshadowing of the teaching that is to come. Deuteronomy is going to be very concerned with the heart obedience of the Israelites. So while on one hand the covenant must operate as a strict legal code to provide order and to minimize the effects of sin and corruption that occur in any human society, the covenant also operates... On the hearts of the ones who believe to draw them into a deeper walk with God. He desires a heart response from the Israelites. More on that in Deuteronomy. With all the detail for the building of the tabernacle and its furnishings and the priestly garments, we might miss the central point of this section. God intends to provide the Israelites a real sense of his presence among them. He said in 29:45 to 46, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. This is why we emphasize palace or temple as one of our six elements in our kingdom motif. It is a theological theme from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Adam and Eve experienced the presence of God in the garden, and there was a tree of life there and a river running through it. Revelation 21 22 gives us a similar vision, though it's in a city, the New Jerusalem, rather than in a garden. There's also a tree of life, also a river running through it, and the presence of God is among the people. That's the future vision of a new heaven and new earth. For now, God plans to make his presence felt in the tabernacle, which establishes some boundaries. God's glory will be revealed only in part and is only approachable to a certain point. Just as Moses walked on holy ground at the burning bush, and just as the Israelites stayed off the mountain when God appeared in fire and smoke, so also there's a barrier in the tabernacle to remind the Israelites of the holiness of God. God desires heart worship, He desires personal relationship. He says, I will dwell among them and I will be their God. That doesn't mean he's the Israelite's God as opposed to being other people's God. Yahweh is Lord of all. But when we say, you are my God, we are expressing personal commitment to the Lord. This personal commitment includes personal relationship. And if we're not sure how personal that could have been for old covenant believers, the Psalms give us a glimpse into how some of them experienced relationship with Yahweh. They felt free to pour out every kind of positive and negative emotion that we can think of. There's an intimacy of relationship there that many New Covenant believers have never experienced. And yet God does keep a boundary around his holiness that will not be removed by the ongoing symbolic sacrifices of atonement required in the Mosaic Covenant. God will not remove the barrier to the Holy of Holies until after the one true sacrifice of atonement has been made by Jesus much in the future on the cross. So in the tabernacle, we have something amazing and beautiful and personal, yet still communicating that there's a barrier between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of his people. If you can imagine the beauty of the finished product, and even more the experience of the presence of God dwelling in the finished product, Then the reading about the tabernacle pattern takes on a sense of excitement. So imagine preparing a stage production or a wedding celebration or Christmas decorations. If you are a creative type, that might come easier to you. I believe Moses was able to envision the rich fabrics and precious metals, all the colors of gold and scarlet and blue, to be fashioned by skilled artisans. Imagine the glorious presence of God in the tabernacle, casting light out through the fabric. You know, it must have been glorious in the colors, like r- rainbow light. You know, and there's this fresh smell of bread every day on the table of presence and the continual release of aromatic incense. All the senses are engaged. Exodus 28-2 instructs to make garments for the priest for glory and for beauty. The dressing of the priests is to reflect the one they serve who is full of glory and beauty. On the mountaintop, Moses experiences this grand vision of God dwelling among a people who have received him as their own. In his arms, Moses holds the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. But before he goes down, God warns him he is not going to like what he finds at his return. Moses' experience with God on the mountain is very different from the people's experience in the camp. Exodus 32, 1-6 Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, "'Come, make us a God who will go before us, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him.' Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast To the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. As Moses experiences the beauty and goodness and truth of God in the plans he has for the people, the Israelites, in their impatience and faithlessness, degrade God into a form designed by the minds of men. They had experienced firsthand the otherness of God, the mystery and holiness of God. He told them that he intentionally revealed the fearfulness of his might so that they would not sin. And yet the pool of Egypt in their sinful flesh overcame their experience with God, overcame their oath to obey all that he has commanded. So they fashioned an idol and called it Yahweh. One thing that stands out to me here is how strongly our conception of God is molded by our social upbringing. The people had grown up in a culture full of idols. Every people group around them understood the gods to dwell in the physical forms of statues made in the shapes of people and animals. And We don't have a record of how faithful the Jews were or were not in their worship of Yahweh while in Egypt. We do have reason to doubt in Leviticus seventeen, Moses is going to have to address again a problem of idolatry. Joshua gives us some insight into the Egypt experience when he expresses his doubts about the faithfulness of the second generation. So after the conquest of the land, he will say this is part of his final charge. This is Joshua twenty four, fourteen to sixteen. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says that your fathers served the gods beyond the river and the gods in Egypt. The gods beyond the river, are the gods of Mesopotamia, whenever the old covenant just mentions the river without much context, it means the Euphrates River. And apparently Abraham's family served Mesopotamian gods before Abraham responded to the call of Yahweh. But then Joshua also indicates that during their 400 years in Egypt, the fathers had been unfaithful, worshipping gods in Egypt. Now he's afraid they're going to do the same in Canaan. Wherever they go, they end up worshipping the gods prominent in that present society. It was the logic of the times. You can have your far-off creator, God Yahweh, no problem. But to worship him truly, for him to be your God and dwell among you as a people, to experience the power of his blessing in life and war, he must be with you as an idol. That's simply the way religion works. To do it any other way is ridiculous. You're not going to get results. And on top of that, you're going to need more gods than one. The creator God's too busy with big things to care about whether you have a child, or whether your crops do well, or whether your shop succeeds, or whether you overcome your personal enemy. There are other gods for that. Other ways to get pregnant, to bring rain, to be financially successful, to get back at those who deserve it. Pleasure, control, security, identity. The gods can give you these things. It's hard in our day to connect with the emotional and intellectual pull that the idol had on Israel. And yet, we have our own concept of what makes worship right and true. Last week, I went into an Orthodox church in Serbia Men and women came in and bowed to the icons, the images of Jesus, Mary, and the saints. There was a strong, pleasant smell of incense, and there was no seating. It was quite foreign to me. There was only this open area before the screen behind which priests conduct the services. I think it's the closest to Old Testament worship I've experienced. I can imagine an Orthodox person entering a simple Protestant church. I don't think they'd know what to do. The worship would feel... Strange, it would feel off, incorrect. This feeling also exists among Protestants. In some sense, you've had this feeling. you've gone into place where it doesn't seem like people can be worshiping here. It's off. You know, how do you worship from the heart to slow organ music? Or how do you truly worship without organ music and theologically rich hymns? How can you worship when there's a band on stage? How can you worship without a band on stage? How can you worship without moving? You're just standing, you're just sitting? Well, how can you worship with all the distraction of movement, all the hand raising and clapping and everybody doing something different? And when we grow up in a religious community, we develop a feel for true worship, and it's developed out of our experiences. And the Israelites had a feel for right worship and it required an idol. But this isn't just about worship. It's about how you go about living life, like what gives you identity, what gives you power, what gives you security, what gives you pleasure. When you seek for these things outside the will of God, outside the context that God has created, whatever gives you those things, identity, power, security, pleasure, whether a job, a career, a relationship— when you follow the present wisdom of your culture, you know, God's not concerned with these things for me. I've got to achieve them myself. There's got to be some other, something else that will give me identity, something that will give me control over my future, something that will bring me pleasure. When you seek that outside of relationship with God, you've slipped into idolatry. You're seeking something from the creation, either in a way that was never intended or you're seeking for it apart from finding it in God. You're meant to receive it from God. There is powerful pressure on our human flesh from society to conform to its norms, its reasoning, its patterns. So less than 40 days after making the oath, we will do all the Lord has commanded, the people gang up on Aaron and demand that he make gods that will lead them up to the promised land. Sadly, Aaron gives in. God had planned for Moses to collect a free will offering for the tabernacle. Instead, Aaron collects a free will offering of gold, and makes a golden calf. There's a little bit of confusion in the text as to whether the people want gods or a god. So it depends on your Bible translation which one you get. The word Elohim is the word translated as God in the Old Covenant, but as indicated by the im ending. In Elohim, it's a plural noun. So it also means gods. Translators usually tell the difference by whether the verb is plural or singular. If the verb is singular, we're talking about God. And if the verb is plural, we're talking about gods. Here in verse 4, the people urge Aaron to make us Elohim, which could be make us God or make us gods. But then in the phrase, who brought us out from the land of Egypt, the verb brought is plural, plural. So we could understand the people as asking for gods who brought us up from Egypt. But then Aaron makes one gold calf and tells the people in verse 5 that they would have a feast to Yahweh before the idol. So I think probably the people are asking for an idol of Yahweh, but along with that, a host of gods. The 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 king of kings, the, the main god, the creator god, is surrounded by Other gods. So they're both asking for an idol of Yahweh and the gods that go with him. So the Israelites have likely broken the first three commands all at once here. The first command is You shall have no other gods before me. This means you shall have God only as your God. It also means you shall not have a pantheon. All the other peoples had a pantheon of gods with one God who ruled and the rest gathered before that God. That's the language there. No other gods before me. The Israelites are not rejecting Yahweh in their minds when they ask for gods or they ask for the idol. They could set Yahweh up in the center and ask for gods around him. So they are breaking the first command. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. This commandment rejects the idea of making a whole host of idols and also rejects the idea of fashioning an idol and calling it Yahweh. Again, the Israelites in their minds might have rationalized that we're not rejecting Yahweh, we're giving him an appropriate form. This is good worship. They're molding him into their cultural image of what a God should be. God rejects any attempt to represent him by something he has created. And he rejects the human desire to make him into an acceptable God. When we reject or downplay the biblical characteristics or stories that we find distasteful or we find uncomfortable or too hard or mysterious to explain, we are molding God into a more acceptable culturally defined image. A God of tolerance for all behavior or a God who would never express wrath, or a God who accepts worship in any form as long as it is sincere. Those are all culturally acceptable forms of Christianity. If that's your Christianity, you're going to fit in. But that rejects the clear revelation that God has given in Scripture concerning himself. You might not understand the Trinity. You might not understand um, the incarnation, God, Jesus as man and God. But it is not given to us to create the nature of, Of God. Again, as I have said, He is not a result of our imagination. We are a result of His imagination. We came to be out of His mind, not the other way around. So we may not mold a calf and call it God, but we often mold God into our own understanding of what we think He must be like. The third commandment is You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. We often think this means do not cuss using God's name. And that's inappropriate. We shouldn't cuss using God's name, but that's not what this is about. This is about prayer. This is about using the name of God to get what we want. The ancient people sought to manipulate their gods for their own benefit. They had an uneasy business relationship with the gods through which they sought blessing for themselves and cursing against their enemies. They thought all we have to do is find the right formula for pleasing God, then it might change, so we need to keep adjusting. But they they knew they needed God to win their battles. And the right way to do that is to have an idol up front and God leading them. And the idol would go before them. And they would call on God as though he's a power source that they can manipulate somehow for their own benefit. That's taking the name of God in vain. When we pray in the name of Jesus, thinking that that somehow gives us power or control, then we are using magic to manipulate the creator of the universe. Prayer is a request. Prayer is a relationship. Prayer is a trusting of God where we offer up, but we accept his answer no matter what. It's We, we don't manipulate or control him. The Israelites have made Yahweh into a form that they think they can manipulate into winning their battles for them. Instead of trusting in faith that God goes before them, they will physically carry God before them as a source of power. In calling for the molding of an idol, the people have rejected God's own revelation of himself, choosing instead to go with a culturally defined revelation of what a truly powerful and honorable God should look like. This is a God everybody can get behind, a God for the whole society, a God that can be manipulated for blessing and power which means, in fact, this is no longer God. Most of the rest of chapter 32 and 33 record interactions between God and Moses concerning this sinful treachery of the people. We'll start with God's initial judgment, and this comes in verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, "'Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves.' They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation." This is the just judgment of the great king who is also holy God. The people have rejected his self-revelation, breaking the first three basic commandments of the covenant. They do not have the excuse of misunderstanding. God revealed himself in fire and smoke, speaking out the commandments himself. The law was clear. They promised to obey it on an oath of blood, and they have clearly broken it. They have neither feared his holiness nor shown gratitude for his gracious redemption. Verse 10 connects together the story of the burning bush and the story of Mount Sinai with this phrase, let me alone that my anger may burn against them. The holiness of God burned on the bush and God burned on the mountain. At the burning bush, God's anger burned against Moses the fourth time he refused God's command. Now God's anger burns against the Israelites. After hearing this judgment, Moses responds to God as a mediator, making intercession for the people. This is verses 11 through 14. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you've brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Notice how Moses intercedes. He doesn't plead on the basis of the people's goodness. They're basically good, God, forgive them. He doesn't make excuses to lessen the seriousness of their crimes. He doesn't make promises to God about future behavior or ritual or how they can pay God back. Moses bases his intercession on the glory of God. He doesn't want the Egyptians to have something about which to speak ill of God. And Moses also bases his plea on the promises that God made to Abraham. It's intercession based on the glory of God and on the word of God. And then we have this incredible statement. So the Lord changed his mind about what he said he would do. The Lord changed his mind. Now how does the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever change his mind? Is that what prayer is, making good enough of an argument to convince God that he's wrong? Did Moses out-argue God? No, there's something else going on here, and this is what I think is going on. This is an example of how God draws a person into experience with him in order to change that person. This is one of the main functions of prayer. We pray in order to see things the way God sees things. We lift up our requests, and we put them before God so that lifting our eyes to him, we might see as he sees and be changed. There's similarity in God's command to Abraham that he sacrifice Isaac. God at that moment drew Abraham up into his heart to experience the sacrifice that one day would be made by God's son. Abraham, that had this experience of the character and the mind and the heart of God. I believe God's drawing Moses up into the tension of his own heart here. God is both just and loving, which leads to both wrath and compassion. God can't simply ignore justice out of compassion, or he would then cease to be holy and good. On the other hand, if God's compassion can't be expressed, there's no way forward for relationship with sinful people. We can't understand the cross without understanding the seriousness of God's justice and the greatness of his love. In this interaction with Moses, God draws him up into that tension. And first, God draws out a response of compassion by letting Moses feel the full heat of his anger. If The son of God himself will be the true mediator between God and man. Moses is being given an opportunity, in a sense, to step into that role. So what does it mean to say that God changed his mind? I think it works as an intentional but unspoken conditional. I think God said to himself, I will destroy this people unless Moses steps up and intercedes for them, upon which case I will not destroy this people. And I know Moses will step up to intercede, so I know I will not destroy this people. God's intent was for Moses to act without being commanded to act. He wanted Moses to choose to intercede. So he only spoke to Moses the first part of the conditional, I will destroy this people. He left the rest unspoken so that in that space, Moses could choose whether to step forward in compassion or not. And so according to the verbal interaction between God and Moses, it is fair to say that God changed his mind. And yet if we're making a comment about the sovereign will of God or the nature of God, then no. In that sense, the outcome was exactly what God had planned in the first place. Moses didn't convince him to change his will or his purpose. I have a personal example that helps me to connect what I'm saying with how God might express part of his will but not the whole in order to create a space that a person might be willing to step into. My example comes from a way I've sometimes communicated as a parent. Generally, when I announce consequences for my kids, I carried through consistency being king and disciplining children. But there were occasions where I announced consequences that were conditional, but I didn't tell my kids because I wanted my kids to choose to do what was right without me telling them to. So for example, I asked you to clean your room three hours ago. It's a complete mess. I know I said we'd go to the park at 11.30. It's now 11.15, so we're not going to the park today because you did not follow through with what I asked you to do. That may be what I said aloud while I added to myself, but if I see contrition and the room gets cleaned in 15 minutes, I'll give in and we'll go to the park. In this case, I chose not to say that last part out loud because I wanted to see the decision being made by my child on her own. I want to see her take responsibility herself. So if she comes back in 15 minutes and says, Dad, I'm sorry I didn't clean my room this morning like I was supposed to. It's all clean now would it be possible for us to still go? Then if I said, sure, get your coat on. It appeared that I had changed my mind, and it would even be fair to say I had changed my mind. But it would also be fair to say that I was acting according to my original plan. I simply didn't speak my whole plan in order to hopefully bring about a change in my child's heart. I've heard that the greatest chess masters can play like 26 moves in advance. I don't know if that's true. It's hard for me to imagine. But I'm sure God can see infinitely further. He knows what he's doing. And here he's created an opportunity for Moses to step into so that Moses himself will fill the compassionate heart, will experience what it is to intercede. After God relents against destroying Israel, Moses heads down the mountain to confront the people himself. This is in verses 15 to 20. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a sound of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. The anger of God turned Moses to compassion. Now faced with the sin of the people, Moses feels the burning anger of God. This is that tension between just wrath and compassionate love. And we could wish that this would be the end of the punishment, that the people would repent, but they do not. First Moses confronts Aaron. Aaron blames the people and then gives this excuse for the idol in thirty-two twenty-four. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Then Moses confronted the people, taking his stand in the gate of the camp and crying out, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. Sadly, only the tribe of Levi came to stand with Moses. Levi fought against or executed, the text isn't clear, 3,000 Israelites that day. The wrath of God is both a just punishment and also a tool to turn people away from their wickedness and back to what is good and beautiful and true, back to God. They would not turn when given a chance to repent. They do turn when Moses and the Levites begin to carry out the just sentence for breaking the covenant oath. After ending the worship of the golden idol and bringing the people back in line, Moses ascends one more time on the mountain to meet with God. This is his sixth time up. He's going to meet with God again as the mediator of the people. This is 32, 30 to 32. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. That's that's the heart. Moses can't do that. Jesus will do that. But Moses is beginning to experience what it is to truly stand in the gap for the people, to be their mediator and to intercede for them. The Lord then told Moses to depart with the people from Sinai and go up to the land of Canaan. But there now be a change in the plan. God will no longer dwell among his people. This is 33, 3-5. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. Because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. We finally come to the point of the burning bush. I said in the lesson on chapter 3 that the burning bush is the symbol of the whole story. And this is it. God cannot go up with Israel. He is a holy God, and they are a combustible people. His burning anger will light them up, for they will continue to sin. And this is the great problem of the covenant. It was the problem with the promise. Abraham couldn't be steadily faithful. Isaac couldn't be steadily faithful. Jacob certainly couldn't be steadily faithful, and even the best of them, Joseph, had his faults. It's the problem with this new Mosaic covenant. The Israelites can't keep it. You know, Moses marveled back in chapter 3 that the bush was not burned up. It's not the marvel that the bush is not burned up. It's the marvel that Israel hasn't yet been burned up. Israel is the bush. God is the fire. And if we don't marvel at the fact that the Lord doesn't burn us up, each one of us, then we have not yet come to a true understanding of our own sin. It should be a mystery to us. How is it that God can put up with me, and yet he does? How does holy God ever make lasting covenant with any group of men and women? That's the symbol of the burning bush. The fire remains on the bush, yet the bush is not consumed. God's not given the answer to that problem yet. He simply states the problem. And he gives up the plan to dwell with the people. That's one solution. God just won't go with them, so he won't burn them up. He's prodding Moses again to make him face the problem. And Moses sees the problem. He says this in thirty-three, fifteen to 16, If your presence doesn't go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. You know, this is the problem. They are supposed to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests to the peoples of the world. But how, how can we be who you've called us to be if you're not present with us? You know, we can't be a special nation. It is your presence that makes us special. And this should be the cry of every local church, every Christian movement. Jesus has given us a new command that you love one another, and they'll know, they'll know you by your love. Do any of us seriously think we can do that without God dwelling in our midst? It's the love of Christ through us that people experience. If we don't have a sense of the presence of the Lord among us, then what's the point of our existence? How can we be any different? How will we be distinguished from every other religious group of people? If God's power and goodness and transforming presence is not among us. And Moses is right. This is the request God wanted Moses to make when he said, I'll not go up with you. So God responds in the next verse, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. But now Moses has come back to the first problem. He has asked for fire to come into the camp. He's invited holy God among a flammable people. So how will they not be consumed by his just wrath when they sin? You know We can't do this without you. We can't do this with you. And so Moses makes this request. I pray, show me your glory. Moses wants to see how this is going to work. Who are you that you can dwell among a sinful people without burning them up and still remaining just and holy? Show me who you are. Show me your glory. The Lord tells Moses, you can't see the full glory of God and live You're only going to catch a glimpse of my glory. Instead, I will speak my glory to you. And he speaks to Moses the glory of his name. His name is in his character, the glory of his being. So God hides Moses in the rock, and then he declares his name to him in Exodus 34, 6-7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is the second key verse to memorize for Exodus. Exodus is very much about knowing God according to how God has revealed himself. In chapter 3, Moses first asks the wrong question, Who am I? Before he asks the right question, Who are you? Pharaoh acknowledged, I do not know Yahweh. And despite confirmation after confirmation in the plagues, he never sought to know Yahweh. God declared his intention to make himself known through the plagues, and so he did to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, even to peoples further afield like Jethro in Midian and Rahab in Canaan. He made himself known to anyone who would receive that knowledge who would seek him. And here again, God makes himself known through the declaration of his name. And we see in it the tension of a truly good character, the tension between love and justice. The second part of the name teaches us that in his compassion, God continues to be holy and just. In verse 7, we're told, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The grace of God doesn't remove the consequences brought on us and on our children as a result of our sin. God doesn't explain here why the sin is visited on fathers and their children and their grandchildren. We'll learn how that works as we continue on in the Pentateuch. God will not allow in his law punishment on children because of the sin of a parent. Each man, each woman must pay the penalty for their own transgressions. I believe here we have a recognition of the consequence of sin. God will allow sin to have its effects. When parents turn from God, that turning away will have an effect on the children. They will be wounded. They will be molded. They will take on aspects of the worldview of their parents. There will be a spiritual effect for which the parents are responsible. and That effect will eventually lead to sin in the children. And then the children will be responsible, accountable for their own sin. And if they continue to live apart from God, their lifestyle will then have an effect on their children. It's not generational sin in the sense that children and grandchildren are punished for the sin Of their parents, it is a recognition that parents have a significant spiritual influence on the direction their children will take. Sin brings consequences, not only for ourselves, but also on those for whom we have been given real responsibility. And while God's justice will allow the effects of sin down to the third and fourth generation, we're also supposed to notice the greater abundance of God's compassion and grace. For he is the one who keeps loving kindness for thousands. What kind of holy God can live in the midst of sinful man? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The answer to the question posed by the burning bush is found here in the name of God. And along with the truth symbolized by the Passover lamb. There's the character of God and his atoning act. So, Because of his love and because of his grace and because of his compassion and because of his truth, God will find a way for love and justice to come together. God will find a way to atone for the sin of the people. Just one last thing I want to show you. Uh, through the Old Testament, this name of God gave hope to the psalmists and the prophets. After his great sin, David asks for forgiveness in Psalm 51. Basing his request in the name of God revealed here in Exodus 34, he prayed, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Ironically, Jonah also prays the name of God, but he does so to tell God that this is exactly why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Jonah wanted vengeance on the merciless Assyrians, the superpower of the north, He told God in Jonah four two that he knew this would happen, that they would repent and God would forgive. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. For other prophets the name of God always gives space for hope. No matter how much judgment the prophets foresaw against the sin of the people, they also always saw the hope of restoration. That's because they knew their God, as Joel says in two hundred thirteen. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Now, do you know that for yourself, that you can always return to the Lord your God? Because he is the Lord your God, compassionate with you, gracious to you, slow to anger and abounding in his loving kindness and truth. Israel thought that the greater enemy existed outside the community. If only we can throw off the Egyptians, we'll be free. We see how untrue that is. A more insidious enemy resides within. In the motion of the moment on Mount Sinai, they shouted out, we will obey all these commandments. And yet the disobedience came quickly and with equal enthusiasm. So God's anger burned like flame on the bush and fire on the mountain. Yet the people were not consumed. Just as we saw in Genesis, the promise of God is anchored in the character of God. Only God can bring about relationship and restore kingdom. God is committed to the sinful people. Out of his great compassion, he has made a way to dwell with them without transgressing his own justice. He will be the Passover lamb. So he tells Moses, cut out two new tablets of stone because I'm going to restore covenant And dwell among my people If you would like the text of this lesson With some reflection questions Or if you'd like to see overview charts That go along with our study of the Pentateuch Then check out the resource page At ObserveTheWord.com